As part of the Dublin Festival of History 2022, the National Archives invited Dermot Ferreter to meet with Michael Collins biographers William Murphy and Anne Dolan in front of a live audience in the Royal Irish Academy. From 1918 to 1922, Michael Collins kept working diaries of his busy revolutionary life. They are a collection of hurried notes, necessary lists, names and appointments, things to do and things not done. They are a record of his long working days and got him to where he needed to be on time. Though these diaries do not contain conventional lengthy entries in which Collins finally reveals his innermost thoughts, they still tell us much about this extraordinary man. Anne and Will have captured this new source in a book published by the Royal Irish Academy in collaboration with the National Archives, entitled Days in the Life, Reading the Michael Collins Diaries, 1918-1922. to As mentioned, this was recorded with a live audience, so there's a bit of background noise. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Here. It's a great pleasure to see you all in person, particularly because it's been so difficult to do that in, in recent years. It's um, absolutely lovely to see this room full. I'm also conscious of all the efforts that goes into organising the annual Dublin Festival of History, and I think we need to pay tribute to all those who are involved in organising what's a very extensive festival. And it does an awful lot to promote historical inquiry in this city. So we've a lot to be grateful for there, and also to the Academy for hosting us and for, for making sure its doors are, are open even during uh, difficult and turbulent times, as Ruth has said, and also to the National Archives for, for making the Collins Diaries accessible, and the family for facilitating that originally. That's why we're here today. I am um, also very privileged to be in the company of two very gifted historians. Anne and William are scholars of great distinction. They have pioneered research and historical writing that is very original, very powerful, very rich and often provocative. So they do all that a good historian should do. And they have also in recent years collaborated and it's a very very positive collaboration because of the skills that they bring to their joint focus. They also write with great elegance and with great skill. That's not a given when it comes to historians. So I want to pay tribute to what they have done in, in relation to their own historical scholarship and also in relation to Michael Collins. This is the second Michael Collins project that they have collaborated on. The first one was not a conventional biography of Michael Collins, but really a thematic excavation of what they describe as both the real and the imagined Michael Collins. And both the real and the imagined Michael Collins have a particular hold over the public imagination and over the historical imagination, and both of those Collinses remain fascinating. And the approach that they took in, in, in looking at Collins um, was, again, very original and very thought-provoking. And the first question I really want to ask you both is, why come back to Collins? When it comes to these sources, what's there, do you think, that is new, that drew you in, 
the nature of the sources, are they radically different to the other sources that exist in relation to colours that you're so familiar with? Do you want to go with me? Strongly into it first. Um, they are in the sense that I think if you think back to maybe he kept these little notebooks when he was young where he defined new words for himself. I think since those, these are the first, if you like, source that's intimately his. They were written by him, but only for himself. I think pretty much everything else we've ever had about him, for him, by him, has been him writing to someone else, annoying someone else, hectoring someone else, getting them to do work, doing all sorts of work himself. But here are these things that were him, were his, for himself. And in a way, we could approach, we could have approached them as, well, here's the last piece of the puzzle, this is going to solve them, but actually it's made him harder to pin down, and I think that's the exciting thing about them. Um, they're, in a way, incredibly challenging because he leaves so many gaps. He doesn't write down the things you might expect him to write down, naturally. He doesn't make it easy. I think it would be very odd if he had made it easy for us. Um, when you go back to them, I think that really, that's the thing that makes them exciting. Because I think, in a way, as a biography, someone who's, you know, we've written a biography about this person, and then you're suddenly faced with, here's this brand new source. And you're thinking, with trepidation, as we walked up to the National Archives from Orland Zodium, Everyone in the archives asked us to go up. It's such a privilege to be asked to go and look at these things. And a slight degree of trepidation in terms of is, is he going to actually contradict all the things we said about this book? <laughs> uh, and there was a sort of, I don't know about you, but there was a bit of a few moment in the sense that a lot of the things reinforced, I think, some of the, the, the points we were really trying to get across in the biography that this is someone who's possibly most comfortable at a desk who likes paper, who writes and writes and writes, and his revolution is, is paper-shaped. It's, it's, it's an it's a revolution in many respects. But it also brought out, I suppose, new sides to him that I think, you know, we may not have expected. I think a lot, of, a lot of biographies haven't really taken account of certain things, like the importance of family, how much family was a part of his life in, in many respects. But also for me, anyway, it slowed down this period for me in a way that I haven't been made think about that before because as the stories of the period we kind of rush from one big event to the next, we rush from the rising to the 1918 election to the War of Independence, Drew Street, Civil War. And these things just slow you down to day by day by day, almost hour by hour in some cases. It's just the slow grind of that period. And even given that slow grind and the, the various entries over various years, there is no final piece of the puzzle or the jigsaw. Sure, there isn't. Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, uh, and I don't think uh, you know. It's interesting, I suppose, coming back to this. In both both projects, as you mentioned in your introduction, that the first book was a sort of thematic approach to him rather than a straight biography. And in that sense, in that book, we weren't chasing after the final word on Michael Collins or trying to you know tie uncover the un, you know. It wasn't another return to try and find the real Mick, do you know what I mean, in that sense, or the realer Mick. Uh, and uh, with this one, in some ways, the thing that was interesting about it is that it was a cha the challenge of it was engaging with the source and trying to figure out what we could do with this particular source, if that makes sense. Um, and the nature of it made us increasingly aware, I think, that when you're trying to understand a historical figure, uh, that there's a person, there was a real person in the past, mm -hmm. and then there's a historical figure that we make and remake and remake. And with a source like this where there are so many gaps, 
you're made very aware of that process immediately where you're trying to fill in, you're filling in the gaps and the danger of uh, either trying to treat this as the Rosetta, Rosetta Stone of Collins that was going to reveal something extraordinary, or, 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 but also that tricky business of how can you um, try to say something useful about him without trying to, while acknowledging the fact that he is, there was a real person in the past that we're never going to get to, what we are doing is we are, we are creating hist- you know, a historical figure. There's, there's the past and then there's history. Um, Hilary Mantel, who died recently, um, she, in one of her Reef lectures, she said that uh, you know, history is the strategy we have devised for trying to uh, you know, deal with our ignorance of the past. I suppose. And I kind of buy that, do you know what I mean? And when you're dealing with a source like this, you're more and more aware, made aware of how much you don't know. And on that very point, there's an awful lot that is not in the diaries. And when we consider some of the most momentous events, the most important political developments, for example, there are big, long gaps and silences. There are, yeah. And, you know, there... You, and you know, so, so there's very f- there are whole periods where he's so let's start at a basic point there are five of them mm. and uh, the first couple of years 1918 and 1919 uh, how is what you're seeing largely are you know uh, noting down of meetings aid memoir uh, notes to self um, making sure really that he gets to the meeting on time most of the time. Uh, he's not giving you uh, self-reflection largely, and even he's only giving you part of his day. So very often in 1918 and 1919, I think he's give, you're getting his evenings. So all those meetings he's moving to, around to after he's done his day's work in the office. So even in a day-by-day basis, there are gaps. Um, and, you know, they're, they are, they're, you're trying to figure out, oh, you know, say there are meetings. So what there are actually is 8 o'clock number 41 or 6 o'clock number 37. Uh, So you know there's a huge space there that you've got to try and fill in. But then if you move through the through the years uh, if you get to 1920 there's hardly anything at all for the second half of 1920. Probably because uh, you know this is at the period where keeping a diary like this is most dangerous. so that's likely, and there's very little, there's nothing at all for the first nine months of 1921. So there, you know, that's just a big yawning space. Uh, and then you get to 1920, late 21 and 22, and what you have really there are, you know, daily to-do lists is what you're actually working your way through in some in some ways. Uh, and you can see him that the process of this busy man crossing through the yeah. tasks that he is, he's, he, you know, he's working his way through in the day. But even then, it's pretty clear that there are other diaries, like desk diaries, that are accounting for other parts of his life and other parts of his day. You know? So increasingly conscious that this is partial, and we have to try and figure out a way of you know, making sense of a source which was very partial and yet presents something you know, kind of coherent and interesting. And this is part of, of, of the challenge as well, Anne, because... You don't oversell these diaries. You don't overplay them. But you do acknowledge that there's a lot of coding that needs <laughs> to yeah. be deciphered. Yeah. Uh, there are winks in these diaries. Is that a fair way of describing it? Absolutely. I mean, but at the same time, I think there was that idea 
the first time you'd get them in your hand and you read them and you think, you know, what can you do with these things? Because as you say, it's 8 o'clock and I'm 41. You can decode that, you can figure out where number 41 is or whatever the number is. You can do that sort of work. And I think if you know other people will look at these diaries and approach them in an entirely different way and will do that sort of detective work in an even greater level than I think we probably did. But I think one of the things that really struck me is that when you look at them and you think, well, there's such there's really obvious gaps there. He doesn't he doesn't mention signing the treaty. He doesn't mention becoming a TD. He doesn't mention some of the things that you think, well, Quick, get, take me to the 6th of December 1921, what does he have to say? I don't know what I felt like to sign the treaty, nothing. And you're kind of thinking, well, that's not his problem, that's my problem. I'm looking at this the wrong way. I'm not thinking about this source as the way, as the thing that he used. I mean, these are notes to remind himself to do things. They're not necessarily the important things. Yeah. Um, he knew he signed the treaty, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, there's that sort of side to it. But I think it makes you think, well, what can I as a historian do with gaps? And I think the, the links are there, yes. I mean, you know, we'll probably speak better to this idea of the, the, the link in prison escape. But like there's other things as well he mentions when I was particularly struck, he, you know, the, the day Harry Bowland is buried, he writes this note about buying knickers and socks and, and stuff. And you think, you know, you could look at him, this, this is an incredibly callous person. But on the other hand, you know, because the same day he's writing letters to Kitty Cairns yeah. and saying how he feels about Bowman being dead. And in a way, you just think, well, no, actually, rather than look at that and say there's a gap there, it's actually telling you how this man filled those awful days. And in a way, it's just that sense of his ordinary life starts to come through. And you can sort of see this is a real person. Back to your point, this is a real person. And the real person comes through in a way in the gaps and in the, the things that are there instead of the, the things you expect to find. And whatever about the gaps, particularly when it comes to an event like the signing of the treaty, he does have an entry relating to Bloody Sunday in November 1920, but he's selective in what he records. Yeah. Would you just explain that a bit, because it, it, it's intriguing. Yeah, I mean, he writes after, again, back to your point, he's quite silent. He goes quite silent in the second half of 1920 for obvious reasons, maybe. But he, he just writes this really interesting entry. It's one of the few places where you get almost a full sentence. He doesn't, he rarely writes full sentences in these diaries. And it's, you know, McKee and Clancy were murdered by the English today. That's the only time he directly refers to, I suppose, an act of violence like that. It's the only time he uses the word murdered. And it's very noticeable when you talk about the English and the British humanism, and that's things not to be said there. I think this is a, it's a real moment of sort of personal loss for him on the one hand, because McKee was an incredibly close friend, someone he knew from Frondup. I think as well as that, you know, he was supposed to have been involved in, you know, putting McKee's uniform on for his funeral. You know, this was a, a quite stark moment maybe as well, in the sense that, well, what's going to happen to me if I'm caught? Is the same sort of fate waiting for me? I mean, it's, it's interesting, as you said, he's quite selective because he doesn't mention Croke Park, what happens in the afternoon of Bloody Sunday. But again, having looked at, say, the oral statements of many of the men involved in Bloody Sunday mornings events, they don't talk about Croke Park either. Yeah. So he's not alone in that. He's not alone in not making that connection. But it might, I suppose it might suggest that certain things got in on him yeah. in a way that others didn't. Yeah. Which, I suppose, brings me back to a point that's been made about reflective entries. Well, do you think Collins was a reflective character? Um, well, 
you can see certain places where he's trying to work out his positions. I think when he reflected, he tend to do it through letters and conversation, if that makes sense. Mm. So you can see him trying to figure out and develop his positions through, through correspondence some of the time. Uh, he's certainly not doing it here in these spaces. That said, you know, he's, a, he's, he's very widely read, and that's one of the things that comes up in the diaries. Uh, you can see, again, his interest in reading. Reading is, a, is an activity which comes up. Uh, but he didn't... Uh, you know, it, after, the, after the treaty, and in making the arguments around in favour of the treaty afterward, he begins, and, and at that point he's emerging into public life, he begins to try and articulate a pos, you know, what, what his position is in the world and what he believes in and the case he has to make for the treaty. But before that, he, you know, he's, he's really not a public figure who's leaving behind, at least, a lot of evidence for us to determine how reflective he was and to ter- determine how deeply he had thought about the future of Ireland and what he wanted it to look like, apart from the fact he was very clear you know, that he wanted independence and what he wanted... You know, yeah. if, if he was to describe what his achievement was, I think he would say the evacuation of the English. You know, uh, and he was very clear about that. Um, but he... It would be interesting to see, I guess, this is one of the, the questions about, you know, he was being forced into a position in 1922 where he was beginning to have to think about what he believed in and what kind of country he would like to create. But, you know, I think it was only the beginnings of yeah. that. Are you hinting, though, that when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to perhaps future social policy in the stage, that we might need to go back and reconsider that perhaps there was a bit more there than we've been accustomed to do. Uh, and we, we have to acknowledge, you just have, you know, this is a young man uh, who is not necessarily, has not necessarily developed uh, his thinking in a deep way about you know, what comes after freedom. Um, but you, you seem to be suggesting that there was perhaps a bit more going on, given some of the entries on what they refer to in relation to policy areas. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to say a bit about that? Yeah, I think, it, it, you know, as you said, that thing of up to that point where they go to London and obviously when they come back from London, it's that realisation that, well, okay, up to this we just had to keep it going. But now it's that moment, well, here, here is this independence-shaped thing, now what are you going to do with it? And it's incredibly striking how quickly he wants meetings with the different departments. He wants to, he's desperate to, to sort of talk to Kevin O'Shea about an AND Act. He's looking up the sort of the, the Irish Convention uh, ideas and what they were going to do with the Land Act. Mm-hmm. He's interested in housing. He's talking about the Shannon scheme and electricity. He needs someone from Siemens. You know, he's he's clearly taking stock of everything. He's estimates. He keeps putting down the word estimates. He wants balances. He wants to know what's going on. And I, I think again, it speaks maybe a little bit to how we've underestimated who he was all the way through. He was he had been minister for finance for quite a while. And I think, you know, as Minister for Finance, he was always going to have want overview of everything that was going on. But, you know, his, his apparent interests in those things are quite striking because I don't think any biographer has really thought about him as being a person who had views on the land, which is odd given he's a farmer's son. Yeah. You know, it's odd that they haven't thought about his economic ideas. You know, he, I think at one point, is it like sometime in 1919, he has this tiny little note meet JC and it's and then he just follows it up that we think it's John Charters and it's just about future economic relationship with England. 
he's already thinking about that. So you know, there's the beginnings of things, and then obviously the pace of events in 2021 take over a bit. But clearly, he's having to walk things through. What, what, what do we do now? How do we make this work? Because if you think about it, the day he takes over Dublin Castle, he gets 14 new jobs. You know, that's a pretty big day. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's a that's the that's a, if you like hitting the reality of well, what does this actually mean? What does this, this independence actually mean for us? Um, and, and you know he takes to it with absolute gusto. There are there are also discernible trends and preoccupations. Prisons. Collins always remains interested in prisons, and these are reflected in the diary entries as well, aren't they? Yeah, uh, I mean prisons are everywhere in the diaries, which is um, for someone who was interested in prisons was a great relief. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, I mean he's really he, he really thinks that. You can see the prisons matter in a whole series of ways. So, I mean, they, they matter in the sense that he, you think there's a genuine concern there that you can see for the prisoners and for welfare of prisoners. Um, they appear in various ways. He's noting down prisoners whose, you know, whose mothers are ill, for instance, and they're in the in rat camp. And clearly he's thinking about asking for their you know, temporary release. Um, but also he's aware of them uh, in, in other ways. He's aware of the potential of prison organisations uh, you know, as a factor around mobilisation. And he's, you know, he, obviously for a while, the diaries don't begin until 1918, but he's still the secretary of the Irish National Aid and Volunteer Dependent Fund for several months there. Uh, and he's, he remains interested in the Irish, uh, in, in the Irish Republican Dependence uh, Fund, later Prisoners Dependent Fund. Um, so prisoners are are there in that way and are very, uh, are very crucial in the diaries. He's doing small things like sending cigarettes into the prisoners at Mount Joy. Um, he's also very aware of the potential for mobilising inside, prison, inside prisons. And you can see there's a very consistent correspondence that's coming up all the time between himself and Austin Stack through 1918 and 1919. And Stack is leading prison groups inside Belfast and later Strangeways Prison uh, in these periods. And you can see, you know, they the sort of concern to see what, what's happening in, inside prisons. Uh, and then, towards the end, which is very interesting for me, uh, was he's being forced, there's a sudden flip. Uh, you know, he's spent several years undermining prison systems and trying to ensure that you know, the, the prison war is a way to, you know, to achieve his overall aims. And then suddenly, he is the person in charge of prisons. That's one of those jobs, you know. I mean, he's not... He, in the sense he's not directly responsible, but he's, he's overall responsibility for these. And, you know, they, it brings their positives that come with that initially. He's, you know, intervening to ensure that young fellows are released out of the Borstal and Clonmel, and he can, you know, tick that off. But then, very soon, he's, org he's organising mass imprisonment and mass internment, as he tries to, he's forced to do that, you know, to try and ensure that his, his infant state survives. And that must have been quite a shock for a person who'd spent, you know, a period, you know, constantly thinking counter the prison system is suddenly the person who has to manage the prison system. And back to the cigarettes. The cigarettes are essential for the sanity of prisoners. Yeah. And we have testimony from prisoners who were deprived of cigarettes as nicotine addicts. And they were going out of their minds. And Collins made an entry about cigarettes himself. And you've got quite a wry comment on a decision that he made. Explain. say <laughs> <laughs> so that was my fault. Um, he gives up cigarettes, or he just says, stop cigarettes today at some point in 1990. And I, I must admit, I couldn't resist it. It's probably not the best time to give up cigarettes. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, 
He's very concerned at some point in 1921 when the Dáil uh, they decide that they're going to ban smoking in their offices. Yeah. And uh, obviously some people are not, haven't stopped smoking in the offices. And there's correspondence with de Valera where he's insisting that this you know, has to be enforced. And I don't know whether it's because you know, the temptation to cigarettes is too much for him or whether it's just this instinct that we've decided this is going to, you know, this is going to happen and so we must make it happen. <laughs> but it does it does bring up the wider issue of his health of course um, you know the poor devil is getting a bit porky uh, and this is commented on that he's developing a bit of a paunch yeah. and the gels are on display and is it too mean and cheeky to say he was also stuffing his face for Ireland uh, all of these meetings are not necessarily conducive to a taught and fit Michael Collins will they? There's a lot. There's all lunches in the diary in 1922, particularly. I mean, he's doing a lot of businesses over lunches. It's a way to meet people. And again, he's, you know, he's always using the sort of social activities as a way to meet people as well. But certainly, I mean, there's a there's a letter that he, he you know he writes that he, he needs the the waist let out and the, the collar expanded on the on the new uniform in, in August. So he's, you know, he has changed. And I think it's it's not just that he's you know lunching for Ireland, but he's you know there's a there's a really interesting contrast between the description of, of, a, of, a, of a British report on what he looks like in 1916, which is this sort of well-built, you know, strong-jawed young man, and then I think the, you know, the report in 1920 of what he looks like, and it's you know, he's 30 but looks 40, which you know, is a horrible sort of you know way to describe somebody that he's you know, he's got it getting jelly, he's put on weight. He's not too healthy, like we, we can but, know but that from other sources. He's that, not well. That fits that with. The frenetic pace, particularly in 1922, and uh, uh, even the meetings in themselves, you know, there's just a constant frantic uh, rushing around, isn't there? Yeah, and I think that comes through particularly, you know, for me, it it seems you think will, but I mean, particularly for me, that came through in in the 22 diary. And as you say, it became this to do list, which most of the time he crosses off everything, or he seems to cross off most things on the list, but it's, you know, it's one thing after another after another, and even. The, even during the negotiations in London, I think you know we knew these were we were busy days and that, but you just get that sense of hour upon hour upon hour, and then back for more discussions about what might happen the next day. And you know it is taking a toll on his health. And even there's a couple of days where you know he says in bed sick, and then you know the next day it's still in bed, but you know the meetings start to come to him in, in the bed. You know, so that he's not left alone really very much. Um, so you know there's a. There's a very busy life being lived out around all this business as well, in the sense that here's this, you know, youngish man who's he's also preparing to get married and, and you know all the all the, the sort of stuff that goes with that. So it's it's a busy and, time. There's also the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which hasn't gone away, you know, at, at this period. And are there entries that shed some light on the IRB? Again, we're, I suppose we're back to coding, aren't we, and winking? Yeah. Well, the IRB is, is there a lot of the time, and it's there in ways that maybe you'd have thought it shouldn't be. Uh, you know, he is uh, recording in sometime, I think it's April 1919, 
uh, the, the circle meeting and who gets elected officers of his local circle and it's you know himself with a little circle which presumably means centre uh, and uh, Sean Noonan and Joe Furlong who are listed the other officers uh, you know I, I presume he really shouldn't have been taking that down uh, and, and keeping it in a notebook that might be captured and then in in around the truce period uh, uh, sorry later on even again when uh, post the treaty uh, he's at an IRB meeting and he's clearly you know he's taking down uh, who's whose views, who's expressing what views, if that makes sense. So he's recording that kind of thing. Uh, but in terms of coding, it's also there regularly. Um, you can see you know, there are certain, build, you know, in terms of numbers of buildings for us that, were, that he was meeting in that are regular IRE, IRB spaces. Uh, the WTM is there a lot of the time in 1918, 1919. And that's the Wolfthorn Memorial Committee, yeah. which is, you know, sort of an IRB front, effectively. Um, so he's regularly, you know, that's regularly there. And one of the entries that was most interesting, I suppose, or an initial decoding one, was there's a funeral in early 19, in March 1918, and it's Matty Murphy. And we were kind of going, who's Matty Murphy? And why does he care about Matty Murphy's funeral? Uh, and sort of between, if you sort of figured out that Matty was, a, you know, was an old Fenian. You know, there are lots of old Fenians who are dying in you know, 1918, 1919, but why does Collins care about you know, Matty Murphy, the old Fenian? He's not Jeremiah Donovan Rossa. Uh, but in actual fact, you know, Matty's son was out in 1916 and he was in prison in Stafford and Frongoch with, with Collins. So that sense of the IRB not just as a political uh, instrument but as a, as a brotherhood, you know, as a place where sentiment and solidarity exist, uh, uh, even, I think, emerges even in sort of a short little apparently coded message like that. Were there notes you couldn't crack? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think as well, the brevity of some of the entries are, there's a temptation to try and crack them with a hammer, and in a way it's kind of, you read too much into them. Um, I mean, that's one of the temptations, but like, there's a few things. I mean, he has one where he just says particular day. And I kind of love that idea that I do not know what that means. And I hope, that, you know, someone will probably figure out what that means. But I kind of like the idea that I will never get to know what that means. I like the idea he gets a particular day of his own. Because it, it kind of, it's a lovely reminder that this is a person who is, it's back to your point about the real person as opposed to the person you've created. It keeps him that real person for you. It reminds you all the time that you actually don't know this person. You can't speak for him even though we probably are doing just that. But <laughs> you don't actually have the right to, he has the right to keep the secrets. You don't know anyone. Does he really? Right. <laughs> Why not? Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he get Well, I, I suppose I've often wondered, is anything sacred now yeah. when it comes to trying to, to excavating these individuals? What do you think? Well, I mean, it, does he have a right to his secrets? I'm not sure if I put it that way so much as that I'm glad that in some ways the source, the, the nature of the source ran us up against the fact over and over again that there were certain things we couldn't know and reminded us of our limits as historians and that was good for us. I'm not sure that it really, you know, I'm not sure, you know, uh, I'm not sure, I'm sure Michael Collins doesn't care whether we know all these secrets or not at this point. But it, it, was, it was good for us to realise that in actual fact, you know, uh, that there were things we just couldn't figure out. And maybe, maybe it's a plea to not try and use these diaries, as I said earlier, as some sort of Rosetta Stone, and not to try and attempt to use them to figure out the last thing about Michael Collins. Because they're, you know, 
risky. Yeah. There are some things that actually, you know, m maybe we could figure out, but maybe they're just things, some things that are not very useful to know. And given that we all have that gossipy interest in his private life, would some of these relate to affairs of the heart, do you think? Uh, the particular, well, yeah, yeah, so there are, there's, there's one. one. Says, um, I think yeah. it's the 1st of January 1919, so it's sort of New Year's Day. Yeah. Well, he was certainly obsessed with money for the movement. Uh, he was, uh, you know, there was a period where obviously where it's his job. Okay, so he's the minister for finance, and these diaries really, uh, for the first half of 1920, there's, you know, the dominant type of entry are just lists of donations coming in uh, associated with the Doyle loan, uh, and. You know, he was meticulous in terms of keep. Uh, you know, obviously t noting down uh, how much was coming in, where from, sometimes who was donating him, and that's quite interesting. Who's managing? You know, who's the individual? Who's who's the conduit of the money coming to him? Uh, day after day after day after day, there's lists like that through 1920, um, and I think it reminds us in some ways that you know. Well, what, why, why is that important to him? Well, he needs the money for a number of reasons. He needs the money for the, you know, he's in charge of making sure that money comes in uh, to, to buy the arms to undermine the existing yeah. state, but also to build up that counter-state which, which he's in charge of. Uh, but also I think it's a reminder that he's hung his reputation at that point on, you know, delivering that money, you know, uh, being that whether he achieves that or not is crucial to how he projects himself out, out into the movement. So it's very important for him to deliver the money. But the other thing I think that's important about it is I think he realises he's very conscious, back to the prisoners, he's very conscious all the time, I think, of mechanisms of mobilisation, if I put it like that. So um, for a lot of the people who are... There, there's a very small number of people who are actively involved in shooting or getting shot at in the first half of 1920. Uh, for lots of other people, you know, who might be prepared to campaign an election or to vote, a lot of times there's not much else happening on, yeah. so happening. So organising them around, collecting the money and delivering the money, you know, it's purposeful activity. And I think he's very conscious of how important purposeful activity is for keeping the movement together. Yeah. And that raises an intriguing question that is counterfactual. And so many have engaged in this part of the game, had he lived... Would he have brought a greater competence, uh, you know, to the national finances, amongst other things? I remember, I think, on the 90th 
anniversary of his death, my good friend Tim Pat Coogan suggested that had Michael Collins lived, Ireland would never have had to enter a bailout in the early 21st century. Um, and, you, you know, there are all sorts of fanciful assertions that have been made at various stages, and we're aware of the annual pilgrimage to Bail of Law and hitching Collins on to whatever is dominating the news or current affairs at the time, including the suggestion that he was a great feminist and, and, and so on, you know, stripping him of his Edwardian context and, and, and attitudes, but is there validity and is there anything in those diaries that, that would give validity to some of those counterfactual speculations? I'm, I'm tempted to be very flippant to say Please my, do. My, my, my dad couldn't make it up this evening because the train broke down in Limerick Junction. Uh, if only Michael Collins had lived. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, I, look, uh, one of the things that's clear about him from the previous book and from this again is just how much energy he, he had and how hard he worked, okay? And also his capacity for change, okay? So those things are clear, and you can see his capacity to move through roles, okay, and to learn very quickly. So in that sense, you can see why people invested, you know, hopes in what he might have delivered, yeah. okay? Uh, but back to an earlier question you asked, we, we still know so little about what he thought about the kind of Ireland yeah. he would create um, that I think it's very difficult to make, uh, to make you know, sound projections about the kind of Ireland he might have created. In some ways, it's, that it's, it's because we know so little about what he thought that there's this space there's this vacuum in which we've been able to project all, you know, the kind of Ireland's we have, we would have wanted, and you know, make Michael Collins our high priest of our Ireland, if that makes sense. So, so I'm very cautious about about it. The other thing is that um, you're being very polite. Right? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that you're very aware of all the people around him through these days. So lots and lots of other names in this, you know. So he's part of a. You know, a, you know, a movement with lots of other very active, very some of them very competent, some of them less competent people, uh, and you know, uh, he wouldn't have been shaping the future of Ireland on his own, even if he had lived. You know, there was, you know. And would you throw a bucket of ice over this whatever yeah, he had? Yeah, I mean, I think what you see, what he does let us see, was you know those back to what you were saying earlier, those weeks and months after the treaty signed, where he's trying to make his case. A lot of what he's saying is they're the kind of things that many of his contemporaries are saying. So he believes in, or he seems to say he believes in, you know, a very particular type of Irish Ireland, a very particular type of economic future that looks, and again, Jolie has made this point many years ago, that, you know, it looked pretty like what, you know, you were going to get when you got the Valera and what you got when you got the economic war. You're, you're, you know, he, I think Jolie went as far as to say, well, if he had lived, he might have found it something that looked like being fought. <laughs> um, you know, so you know, he's he's very much a man of his time. In terms of, from what we can gather, I suppose from what he left, he, he looks like he's he's projecting policy that could have been said by many many of his contemporaries. And yeah. it, I was really just struck by that idea that Michael Hayes, you know, who was very much a part of the, the you know the, the government that followed. He talks about this idea of when Parnell died, it took, or when Parnell when the Parnell split happened. 
you, it took 10 years for the movement to recover from his loss. But when colleagues died, we replaced him within as many hours. And I think we can't sort of overlook that idea. He is very much part of a, a machine. He's yeah. a vital part of the machine. But it, it, in a way, maybe that's the, the, the sort of tricky to him. That machine survives and works work well enough not to, sub, you know, not to have this big yawning chasm in some ways. And I think, I, I don't know, I mean, that's not to underestimate what he may or may not have done. But, you know, if you, you're just struck again and again. He was very much, he was very much of, of his time and of the he's also, he was also a vital part of the family, his family, to bring it back to the personal and, and, and human elements. Is there much in these diaries that gets you thinking about Colin and the family? He was the youngest. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think in, in ways most of the biographies look at the family in a, in a or have looked at his family in a, in a very, very self-serving way in the sense of how what is it if we look at his family, what is it that tells us that what is it that made him this, this this sort of great figure as opposed to looking at his family on their own terms? And you have this sort of interesting situation where the youngest member of the family becomes this incredibly influential figure, and by him becoming that, that changes their lives. I mean, that puts that family in danger. I mean, you can see. You know, Sean Khan has lost the family, you know, the family home is destroyed. But you also see his interaction with his family in a way that I don't think we've ever thought about before because you see, particularly in the early diaries, Sunday is his day for writing home. Yeah. And by home, I mean to his sisters and, and sometimes to Sean, but mostly to Sean's wife, but always to Hanny. I mean, the sister and he lived with in London. And in a way, the family is just this part of his life that we haven't really taken account of in that way. But at the same time, his role, his responsibilities towards that family are changing as he's becoming this more prominent figure. So you can see that he's doing things for Sean. He's, you know, he's getting him a, a, a doctor's appointment. He's sending him a ghost. When, when Mary's husband dies, you suddenly see, you know, he's taking, he's starting to take a role there, which I think we've seen as well from the military service pensions and Mary's application. It's very clear that he took on a very, a very active role in, in looking after her and her nine children. Um, so I mean, you know, you have this sense of this youngest child who goes out into the world and becomes one of the colonists. That has to have had a huge effect. Well, on the fame. Yeah, it's a low. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I mean, there, this, this sort of gossipy, you know, side to even the British press after his death. And you know, there, there was like one case where I think a journalist just goes up to Hanny in the street in London, and you know, all, very clearly, very soon after he died, and she's clearly distraught by this, and then. It's got to be stuff that you know Winston Churchill had bought her her ticket to come back to Ireland for the funeral. And those pictures of, of his brother, you know, over the grave, over his yeah. over his coffin, you know, they're incredibly, you know, intrusive in some ways. Yeah. But you know, you can clearly see this is a, a family that has got to cope with the fact that they are Monte Carlo's brothers yeah. and sisters. And in relation to the last few months, are there signs of the increasing strain and danger? Or is it business as usual? Um, I think you can... Oh, it's certainly there in terms of... Well, one of the things that's striking about... Um, you know, is that if you just look at names, for instance, uh, it might be a bad sign if Michael Collins used your surname. But it's a bad sign if, I, if he used to identify you by an abbreviation or your first name. And then you start to become identified by your surname. Okay, so someone like Austin Stack is Oz, or whoever I lost at the time, or Austin, and then he becomes Stack, or Harry becomes Boland. Okay, so you can see the sort of strains emerging in those kind of little subtle ways, if that makes sense. 
Um, and also you can see it in the breakdown of relationships with someone like Art O'Brien, uh, which we write a little bit about in the book. Um, so there's no... The, the Sinn Féin representative in London. In London, yeah, yeah. yeah. And back to lunching for Ireland, it's, he keeps a similar diary. They're both sort of highly organised office men, and he has the same kind of diary. Uh, and you can see them noting down the lunches, you know, op- opposite each other, the parallel lunches in the parallel <laughs> diaries. Uh, but those, you know, those lunches start to fall away, and you know, uh, the, the the terms become less friendly. And yeah. uh, that's one of the things that struck me about the diaries again is about Anne's point earlier about slowing things down, and that's particularly important, I think, in 1922. We 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 use the term the split all the time about what happened, and I think that gives the impression of something that happened really quickly. But actually, if you look at it, you can see the relationship falling apart, kind of sundering slowly, and the reluctance and sort of, you know, distress that some of that falling apart causes across sort of... It's happening even before the treaty is signed in some instances. They can see the problems coming. Um, Yeah, definitely... It was interesting to see that the day-by-day of 1922 again reminded you that it didn't go from, you know, treaty to civil war. There's this period of, you know, angst, distress, you know, trying to prevent a war, preparing for a war. I just want to think those bits where, you know, there is business as usual. At times when you think, God, there's too many other things to be doing, but he's clearly meeting people when he's going around the court before the election. And he's like making these notes about somebody who wants a job in the, in the local school, and he's giving out the iron mattresses and things. So he's, he's really fixated on all the, the, the minutiae in some ways. And it clearly still leads back to that thing of he can't, at times, he, he's that sort of, seems to be that sort of person who thinks that nobody else can do the job as well as I can. So there's that sort of instinct still seems to be on display. And, but, and maybe but, that he's tormented by lack of sleep. Possibly, yeah. exactly. But, but also, I mean, thinking back to the IRB meeting that you were talking about, I think it's April 22, like, you know, one of the things he knows down was Nihal do away with him. And I mean, that must have been a hell of a thing to just sit there and write that down about yourself. And just what that... What did he mean? I think he was just writing down something that, I, again, it's hard to, are we over, we're technically over-reading, but whether it's somebody at the meeting who thinks he has to be gotten rid of. But that's the way, certainly, I think Rex Taylor wrote it. That this was, you know, he, he's going to have to be gotten rid of. And that's a hell of a thing to sit in here. Um, so again, while well, he's business, in some ways you could look at that 22 diary, and if you're moving, as you say, that pace quickened. But then at the same time, you get these stark moments where you can look across. This is the falling apart. I'm going to open this up to the floor now, but before I do that, I just want to ask you one last question about the final entry in the diary. What is it, and what might we read into it? Uh, well, yeah, so there's. Was it? He had three. It was one, two, three that day. Two mass, three blank. Um, so yeah, mass. Well, it was Sunday. Um, so I suppose the first thing maybe to say about it. Um, uh, it's interesting again. Back to your earlier question about some of the projections of him as potentially a person who was who was likely to lead a more secular uh, Ireland. Uh, and one might be tempted to see it, it wasn't he regularly attended mass, you know. Um, one of the things that surprised me in the diary, which probably it shouldn't have, but it did, was how frequently priests' names appear in in the diary. Uh, 
and how regularly he, you, he, was, he was working with priests across the country, in particularly in the deliver, delivery of the money of the Dáil Law. Um, so uh, the Ireland he created, I th- he might have created, I think might have been less pietistic perhaps, but I don't think it would have been secular. And he was certainly uh, you know, very aware that you know, uh, the church was a power in the land uh, and the priests were powers in localities. Uh, and these were you know, people he needed to work with. And there was a temptation to overread it, which maybe we did in the book a bit, because in a way, there's something interesting about the diary kind of starts with him going to Cavies in the last entry of the Throne to Mass. I mean, in a way, he's, he's got older in that period, so maybe it's something to read there, but you can overread the brevity of these things, and I think this one is one of them. And I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure there was something like nine soldiers killed in Kerry. And their bodies had just been brought back to Dublin, so I don't know whether that mass yeah. might have been particular to that event. I don't know. But, um, you know, again, it's just thinking in terms of some of the other documents he was writing at the time. He's, he, he wrote this really interesting document in July, I think, of 22, about these um, publicity films he wants to get made. And he writes to Desmond Fitzgerald, says, Go make films yeah. about these five things. And one of them is um, show coverage of funerals of dead soldiers. You know, partly to propaganda piece to kind of you know influence people in the civil war. I don't know, so that in a way it, we can link this, you know, something like that, the nine soldiers mass. But again, maybe he just went to mass, as you said, it's Sunday, and you can't go to mass. So you see, this is the danger of, in a way, of over decoding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can just take it at face value as well. And that's the beauty of this thing. Is of course, it's it's exactly where we were. This is time one hundred years ago. Dead soldiers uh, in, in in our civil war. Um, You've done great justice to the texture uh, of the diaries, and you've really brought marvellous insights. Um, I want to thank you both very much. Thank you.